Well, have you ever read the Bible and thought to yourself, what the? Have you ever thought, what is going on? Uh, What on earth has this got to do with me? Uh, Maybe there's other parts of the Bible that you've had this experience. Maybe it's the laws in Leviticus that tell you what to do if you have mildew in your house or if you find a bird's nest in the middle of the road that you're walking down. Uh, or, Or maybe it's those parts of the Bible where that lady kills the guy by nailing his head to the ground with a tent peg. Or Elisha, you read the stuff about Elisha who gets an axe head to float on water and then gets two she-bears to go maul 40 kids who were teasing him for being bald. What about the time God tells Jeremiah to hide his undies under a rock and come back a year later when they're kind of rotten and useless? They might be interesting stories, but what have they got to do with us? How are they relevant? How is it important for me at this time in my life to know this stuff is the bible relevant to me today you might be thinking something like this when you come to a passage like genesis 19 what is going on and not only did these passage these events take place four thousand years ago but these things are completely and utterly whack like they're just weird what is going on and so when you think about it in four thousand years do you think people are going to care what you or i did or said so what if Abraham did this who cares if Lot did that what does it have to do with us today what does the Bible have to do with us as we live in Sydney in 2017 that's the question we're going to answer as we figure out what Genesis 19 is all about and in order to do that we're going to pray so let's pray dear heavenly father thank you so much that you love us thank you that you've gathered us here tonight around your word the Bible And we pray that you would help us to hear your word and to understand it and to live by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at what we can figure out about Genesis 19. It begins with these two angels who we met in Genesis 18 in last week's chapter arriving at the city of Sodom. Now, that city is where Abraham's nephew Lot lives. They used to live together, Abraham and his nephew Lot, but they just got so big, their possessions, their flocks, they're, they're, they're so massive, they spread out. Lot picked this beautiful-looking valley where Sodom and Gomorrah uh, was. And notice that as, the, as these men, these angels arrive, uh, Lot, just like Abraham, offers hospitality to complete and utter strangers. Uh, not just a drink, but it's a full meal. It's a feast. Spend the night, he says. Wash your feet. It was really nice. The men say, no, thanks, don't worry. We'd rather stay in the town square. But Lot insists. In fact, he is so urgent and he urges them so strongly that they come and stay at his house. And I think at this point, it's no longer about hospitality, is it? I think it's out of genuine fear for their safety. He doesn't want them spending the night in the square. And the reason he doesn't want them spending the night out there is because he knows what kind of city this is. He knows what kind of sick, sinful, depraved people live in his town. They're his neighbours. It's a bit like tourists fly in from overseas and they tell you it's fine. They're going to plan to sleep on a park bench in the middle of King's Cross. Or they're going to sleep in Hyde Park in the middle of the city. Or they've got a gutter outside Redford Station. They'll be fine for the night. All good. It's crazy and it's dangerous, isn't it? So Lot insists and the angels go with him to his place. He makes a meal and they have dinner. And then all of a sudden, all of Lot's fears are confirmed. Verse 4, all the men 
from every part of the city, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. This isn't just a couple of thugs, just a gang of criminals, a small, seedy minority. This is every single man in the whole city comes to Lot's house and demands to have sex with Lot's guests. Now at this point, we need to remember why these angels have come to Sodom in the first place. And we found it out in last week's passage in chapter 18, verse 20, where God says, the the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. Their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they've done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Now, it's not as if God doesn't know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, he's heard the rumours, he's been watching their Twitter feed, he's just wondering whether it's actually really that bad. No, 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 he, he knows their sin is grievous and immense and the outcry is great, but it's almost as if he's giving them one more chance. How will this city react when his messengers come, when his word comes to them? And then at the end of chapter 18, where Abraham pleads with God and bargains with God to save the city if there are 50 or 45, or 40, all the way down to 10. All along, God is willing to give even such a despicable, sinful city as this another chance. I think in this point in chapter 19, though, it's pretty obvious God has got the answer he was looking for. Because this is disgusting, what's going on here. This is sick, and it's wrong. It is wrong because it is not what God created us for. It is not what he intended sex for. The nature and purpose of God's beautiful gift of sex is for a husband and wife committed to each other in marriage to enjoy this physical union, this emotional union, to have joy together and to have children. And what these men want to do is as far removed from that as possible. And it's evil and it's destructive. It's wrong. And Lot knows it's wrong. And he wants to stop it. I'm guessing he knew this was the kind of thing that was going to happen if the men had stayed the night in the square. That's why he insisted on them coming to his house. So Lot does a very brave thing. He actually goes outside of the safety of his house. He closes the door behind him. He puts himself between this angry, lustful mob and his guests. And he pleads with the men of the city, verse 7, No, my brothers, don't do this evil thing. He still calls them his brothers, which is interesting. But he urges them, don't do this wicked thing. Don't do this evil thing. And then he says what could be the most shocking thing of the whole chapter. Up until now, Lot has looked like a really good guy. He's hospitable. He's righteous. He defends these men. But then he says in verse 8, Look, I've got two daughters who haven't had sexual relations with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't harm these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. What does he mean that these men have come under the protection of his roof? What about his daughters? Aren't his daughters under his protection? What kind of a dad would offer his child to a ravenous mob like this just to save strangers? Has he gone nuts? Nice of him to show hospitality, but this is a ridiculous extreme that he is going to. What he's offering 
is just as wicked and corrupt as the thing he's trying to avoid. And fortunately, it doesn't work. The men of the city don't take up the offer. I take it because it's not depraved enough for them. But they're thinking, who is this guy? He isn't even one of us anyway. He's a foreigner. How dare he come here and tell us how to live? How dare he come come here and tell us that we're wicked and we're evil? And so they threaten Lot himself and they say, we're going to treat you worse than we were going to treat those two men. And just as the situation looks like it's about to be completely out of control, verse 10, the two men who Lot was trying unsuccessfully to save and protect end up having to save him. And they do that in more ways than one. Uh, First, they reach out of the door and they pull him back inside. They rescue him from the mob by striking with this blinding light in this darkness of of Sodom and Gomorrah. It strikes them blind so they can't see where they're going. So they save Lot from the, the wrath of this evil crowd. But then more significantly, they then warn Lot, God is about to destroy this city. God is about to bring his judgment on the utter sinfulness of this place and they save him from the wrath of the righteous God. The angry, despicable mob and the even angrier divine judge, the angels rescue Lot from both. But it's not just him they offer to save, but any members of his family, anyone who belongs to him. See, it's interesting, just as Lot, just as Abraham had been blessed and anyone who was connected to him, anyone in his family was blessed as well. So Lot is blessed because he's Abraham's nephew. So this mercy of God shown to Lot also extends to his family, to those who belong to him. Verse 12, he's told, go get them and get them out of this place. And so look at verse 14, Lot went out spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters and he said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Notice Lot went out to speak to his sons-in-law and remember that all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, had gathered outside his house to demand sex with these guests, even the men who were pledged to marry his daughters. This is sick. But it doesn't stop the offer of escape and salvation from being offered to them. Even they have the chance of being saved, of being rescued, if they believe this good news. But Lot says to them, the Lord is about to destroy the city and they laugh. Why would God destroy this city? What's wrong with this city? Who is God anyway? They laugh. Does that sound familiar? Remember last week's chapter in Genesis 18 when Sarah heard God's promise that she would have a son in her old age? She laughed. It doesn't stop God's promise happening. These men laugh at God's warning. Judgment and destruction will come and wipe them out. Laughing doesn't stop it from happening. You see, this is what Christians are saying all the time, isn't it, in our city. This is what we believe. This is what the Bible tells us. God is going to judge everyone. Jesus is coming back. The world is coming to an end. And this city, your house your uni, your school, your work, your car, beaches, mountains, everything will be destroyed. 
But you can be rescued from this coming judgment of God by believing Jesus. That is our message to the world. And how does the world respond? They laugh. They think we're joking. They think we're crazy. They think we're idiots. We're in the same situation as these people, hearing the same warning and watching people make the same response. The sons-in-law ignore the warning. They laugh at the opportunity to be saved. Whereas Lot believes the message, doesn't he? The funny thing is, by dawn, by daybreak, we're told, Lot still hasn't left. He's still hanging around. He's still hesitating. He finds it hard to leave. So verse 15, they they urge him again, you've got to get out. And and why would he be reluctant to leave? I guess it's because it's such a beautiful city with lovely people living there. But whatever the reason, verse 16 tells us that because of the Lord's compassion, the men grab his hand and they drag him out of the city. But verse 26 tells us that his wife was so reluctant to leave Sodom that she turned back longingly and she was turned into a pillar of salt. We kind of find that hard to believe though, don't we? Reluctant to leave such a violence-filled city, a a place of depravity and sin and wickedness and sexual perversion. See, God sees this city as a place that deserves to have burning sulfur rain down. He demolishes the cities. The entire plain, all the inhabitants, everything that grew on the ground is burned up. Lot looks at that city, Lot's wife looks at that city and thinks, wow, it's beautiful, I'd never want to leave. So here's the question for us tonight. If our world ended today, If Jesus returned this very night, would you be ready? Or are you so attached to this world, so reluctant to leave behind this world that you don't want to go? See, the gospel is God's message to us to come out of the world, to come out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of wickedness, the kingdom of death, the society we live in, the culture we are part of and find ourselves so attached to is no better than Sodom. The attitude towards sex in our media and society is no less depraved than Sodom. But we'd find it hard to leave here, wouldn't we? God is going to destroy it all. Don't get too attached. You see, Lot was rescued, but he lost his home He lost his friends, his neighbours, his family, and he lost his wife. He lost everything. But his life was saved. Now, just before we look at how all of this affects us today, I just want to say a brief few words about the end of the chapter. Just when you thought this whole sequence of events couldn't get any weirder, Lot and his daughters find themselves living in a cave. He'd whinged about having to run as far as the mountains, and I want to stay in Zoar. And then he leaves Zohar and says, oh, I don't want to stay here. And he goes to the mountains, all because he doesn't really trust God. And his daughters are there and they're worried they're never going to have kids. So Lot's daughters get their dad drunk and they take turns sleeping with him and they have their father's children. Lot would have been their father, their grandfather, their uncle. The daughters would have been stepsisters of their own children. It's It's horrific. And it shows that while God has taken Lot and his daughters out of Sodom, 
he still really needs to take Sodom out of Lot and his daughters. And really, it's a sad and ironic end to the whole sorry tale. The very daughters who Lot was prepared to give away for the townsmen to do with as they pleased, his own girls who he gave up to be raped, end up raping him. He was willing for them to be used. They end up using him. This is almost the sickest part of the whole chapter. And this is the guy who got rescued. It confirms Lot certainly wasn't chosen. He wasn't saved because he deserved it somehow. See, the attitude to his family, the attitude to sexual relationships that he displayed earlier, oh, here, take my daughters, do what you want has come back to hurt him because it's the same very attitude his daughters have towards him. And the only thing the passage makes out of this is that each of those children actually becomes the father of a nation. The Ammonites and the Moabites are descended from Lot and his daughters. And it's these very nations that in 500 years or so, God is going to order the Israelites to wipe them out and destroy them. These children end up becoming the enemies of God's people. But one of them, Ruth, a Moabitess, becomes King David's grandmother. And King David is one of the ancestors of Jesus. This is Jesus' ancestry we're looking at here. From this moment comes from the bloodline and Jesus is born. God's in control no matter what. Still, what does all this have to do with us? It may be kind of weird and crazy and like sands through the hourglass, but how is any of this relevant to us 4,000 years later? We need to remember a few things. Firstly, the God who acts and speaks in these ancient events is the same God you and I pray to and worship. It's the same God we want people to get to know. This is the same. He is our God and he's powerful and he is the judge. We don't get to create our own safe, palatable, pigeonholed, comfortable God that we're kind of easy with. No, we have to come to terms with the God who is there, the God who is real. He is God. And we need to fit around him. Secondly, the promises of God which precede this event... The promises of blessing to all nations through Abraham are the very same promises by which we are blessed by God. See, it's actually that same commitment to Abraham 4,000 years ago or something that God is keeping in saving us. God promised he would save the nations through Abraham and, and here we are. Same God, keeping the same promises and it's the same sort of human beings. The world actually hasn't changed that much, has it? People still pervert God's will for their lives. We live lives that are damaging to others and damaging to ourselves. We're so selfish. We keep craving more and more experiences and they have to get more and more extreme. We live lives that have no room for God. Great crowds of men coming out at night to have sex with strangers. Sounds like the Mardi Gras. Things haven't changed. The only difference is we broadcast it on TV and call it family entertainment. And these days you don't have to gather in the town square to do this. At every hour of the day, men around the world are gathered online to do all sorts of horrible, depraved things. Humanity hasn't changed. And lastly, God's response to the world is the same. Judgment 
and yet mercy. He punishes sin at the same time as giving the offer to flee and escape his anger. But people just laugh. See, in all this, it's worth asking, why did Lot get saved? Why was Lot saved and the rest of the people burned up in God's anger and fire? Why didn't the angels grab someone else? Was he any better than any of them? Was he a nicer person? Well, ultimately, no, not at all. Verse 29 there tells us one of the reasons Lot was saved. It says, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham, the man who he had promised to bless with blessing for, to, for an abundance of people through all of time. The man who had pleaded with God to have mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't say he remembered Lot. He didn't rescue Lot for Lot's sake. He remembered Abraham. Rescued him for the sake of Abraham. Even when Lot couldn't bring himself to leave Because of the Lord's compassion, he dragged him out, which is just like us being saved. Even if we're able to look at our lives and look at the world and think, it's terrible and horrible and I I want to leave, we can't. Unless God lifts us up and carries us to safety, which is what he does for us in Jesus. Now the second reason Lot gets saved isn't quite explicit in this passage, but I think it's there if you look. Lot was rescued because he believed God. The reason Lot is saved because he heard God's warning and he believed it. Now the sons-in-law hear the same message of destruction. They think it's a joke. Lot believed. Now this should remind us of something that was said about Abraham a few chapters ago. In chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. God gave him righteousness as a gift, as a credit to him. Because he believed his promise. Not because he'd done lots of righteous things, but because God made him a promise and Abraham said, yeah. He believed his word. Same with Lot. If you like here in chapter 19, Lot believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, God did answer Abraham's prayer and he saved the one righteous man of Sodom. Now I'll tell you what, Jesus and the New Testament They think this event is very significant for us Christians. Jesus often refers to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and he uses it as a picture of what will happen on Judgment Day. But what happens to these cities, he says, is just the beginning of their punishment. There's actually more coming for them. In in fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus says, it will be more bearable on Judgment Day for Sodom than it will be for the towns that rejected Jesus personally and the message of the kingdom of God. It will be better on judgment day for these sick perverts than for people who say, no thanks Jesus, I'm not interested. You hear what Jesus is saying? Firstly, the fiery destruction that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah and killed everyone is not the end of their punishment or judgment. Death is not the end of punishment. After that, we have to face God. 
and he is filled with a holy and righteous fury. This is what the argument for euthanasia does not take into consideration. They think, oh, let's just go around killing people who seemed vaguely in a little bit of pain, but where are you sending them? What makes you think after is going to be any better? You have to face God. Secondly, there is somehow, Jesus says, there is somehow a worse punishment in store for those people who reject Jesus and the the revelation of God's love in the gospel than for these sinners in Sodom. City of Sydney is going to be punished big time on the last day for not listening to the hundreds and thousands of Christians who bring the message of Jesus to it every day. They don't listen, they laugh, they mock, they rebuke, they think we're idiots. They're going to regret it massively when Jesus comes back. Our friends, our family, our neighbours, Jesus says, will cop it worse than Sodom and Gomorrah did or will. The book of 2 Peter also refers to these events and uses these things to teach us two very simple things. One, God will not let sin go unpunished. Don't worry and think that evil men are getting away with their wickedness. Don't think you're getting away with your wickedness. God will not let sin go unpunished. Secondly, God knows how to rescue his people. Whatever the circumstances, he will save his people. Even when things are looking bad, God will rescue. So this event so long ago, this glimpse of the world's past is actually ultimately relevant for us today, right now, because it gives us an insight into our future This look at the past tells us what is coming. And for us Christians, it tells us there are two wrong attitudes we can have about the world. On the one hand, we can be so attached to the world where we can give our care and our attention, our treasure can be stored up in the world and our heart's desire in worldly things that when God destroys this world, that we're going to be someone who's looking at it with such longing that we'll miss salvation. Jesus says in Luke 17, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Remember Lot's wife. Let go of the world and its attitudes and priorities. Let go of the world's materialism. Let go of the world's obsession with pleasure and experiences at work, in home, at uni, in Christian fellowship. Do not be like the world, worried about money, worried about pleasure, worried about possessions. And stop using pornography. Don't be attached to the world. Don't be like the world. And on the other hand, our attitude ought to be not that we're so frightened of the world that we're overcome. Don't worry that evil goes unpunished, that God is unable or unwilling to intervene. This piece of history tells us that God is very willing and very able to completely wipe evil off the face of the earth. He will not tolerate sin and he will not let sinners go unpunished. There will be a judgment day. But in his great mercy... He's also willing and able to save those who believe his word. Those who believe in Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf. See, I asked earlier, 
What kind of a father would give up his child to an angry mob just to save a bunch of strangers? God did. And when we fully grasp what happened when Jesus went to the cross, it's scandalous that God gave his one and only perfect, pure son and handed him over to the religious leaders and to the Romans and they beat him and mistreated him and they flogged him and they killed him so that we could be saved. This is what Christians mean when we say we're saved by faith. We're saved by believing in God. We can't do this. We haven't done it. We haven't achieved it. We're not powerful enough to do this, but we trust God and we believe his powerful promise fulfilled in Jesus. Genesis 19 is very relevant to us in the world. We live in the same sort of hideous, corrupt city but we have the same offer of salvation. And like Abraham did, all we can do is trust God and pray. Now we're going to pray in a moment, but before that I wonder if there are any questions that people have from Genesis 19. Yeah. Yeah, it's an excellent question. The question is, who's doing the outcry? And I think you're right. I think it, in, in a sense, it's, the, it's creation itself. It's the spiritual world. There is an outcry to God in the world that he has made that this kind of horribleness exists. There is, there is a cry against it. Um, and, and even Lot, as he lives in that place, as he goes out and says, no, don't do this, he, in his heart, is actually saying, this is wrong, this is wrong. So he's got a small, whispered voice of, this, this should not be. Uh, so there's that and, and I think Abraham knows what's there uh, but I think in a sense there is actually reality itself cries out to God this is wrong and should not be uh, which when, when after salvation and in Jesus you know actually to the whole universe God has declared his righteousness and his mercy in saving us us being Christians is a similar outcry except it's a proclamation of victory that kind of is, is, is shouted out to the whole universe. So I, I think that's what it means by that, that kind of sense of the horror that this exists. But yeah, good question. Any other questions? Um, in Genesis 19, we have a very similar situation where the Temple of the Levite guy who takes his um, concubine, concubine. City, and kind of the same thing happens there. Um, is, is there a particular reason why God doesn't deal with the Benjamites the same way that he deals with Sodom? Yeah, it's interesting. The context, so the question is, in Judges 19, something similar happens. There's, there's a, a horrible crowd. Uh, a man hands over his concubine. They actually uh, end up killing her. And um, uh, what's the difference? The difference is this takes place in God's rescued people. So Sodom is a city uh, that's been created by God. But uh, in G Judges 19, this is God's people. He saved them. He's committed himself to them. He's given them his word. He's given them his covenant and his law and his promises and he's revealed himself to them. And they do that. In a sense, Judges 19 is worse. And yet you see his restraint and his mercy. There are consequences because you see in the following chapters, there are battles and there are deaths and it's, it's weird because the bad guys seem to win and it's all horrible and it kind of... But the whole point of the end of Judges is Israel had no king 
each man did as he saw fit or each man did what was right in his own eyes. And the point at the end of Judges is that without anyone to rule and guide and shepherd, people left to their own devices do horrible sinful things, even Israel. And so the whole point at the end of Judges is we need Jesus to come and be our king and our saviour and rule us and rescue us. But you see God's restraint in the way he deals with Israel. There are consequences, but he's holding back because he saves and rescues and has mercy on his people. Good question, though. They're quite related, these passages. Yeah, maybe one last question. Sorry, yep. Uh, that's possible. I know some people who think, so the question is, uh, is Lot decoying? Um, I'm not sure how that works because what happens if they say yes? What does he do at that point? Um, and hasn't really won. It doesn't work. They don't want this. Um, and I think the way it all finishes up at the end kind of shows the kind of the balance of uh, how what he was willing to do to them, they end up doing to him. Uh, so even if it was a decoy, I take it, I think they're inside the building and they hear him say that. And so if, even if he's going, oh, well, I didn't really mean it, um, what, kind of a, what kind of a decoy is that? Um, he could say, he could offer himself. He doesn't do that. He offers them. I don't think it's a decoy. They're in the building. He, said, he says, in fact, I think Judges 19 backs this up because someone else does it and actually then hands them over. It seems to be a thing. Um, and so actually, I'm not sure how that works, um, in terms of rescuing Lot's kind of character. It's a lie at that point. He's not offering something that he actually believes to be true. It's a horrific offer, even if you say, I had my fingers crossed. Um, so, and I don't, actually, I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think it would actually work. Uh, I don't think it's what the passage says. And it doesn't seem to be how the daughters took it. I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us. And thank you that res you rescue us even though we don't deserve it. And Father, we pray that you would help us to live in this world that is darkened by sin and death and help us to shine as stars in the night sky and help, Father, help us to declare this good news that justice is coming and salvation is possible in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that many people would hear and believe by your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.